Welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Um, not a lot of news in today's local news in today's Globe Gazette, so we'll be working on stories from today's edition, Monday, and we'll back into the weekend as well. On the front page of today's Globe Gazette, uh, the headline is Mourners Honor Hero Principal Perry High School Shooting. Shows a photo of two women standing at a podium. Elizabeth Mar Marburger, wife of Dan Marburger, looks on as his daughter Claire speaks at his funeral in West Des Moines on Saturday. Marburger, a longtime principal who risked his life to save students during a shooting earlier this month at Perry High School, was remembered Saturday for his heroic actions. And the story is written by Josh Funk. Marburger risked life to save kids in school shooting. The longtime Iowa principal who risked his life to save students during a shooting earlier this month was remembered Saturday, not just for his heroic actions that day, but for the unconditional love and compassion he showed his family and students during his years at Perry High School. Mourners filled the Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines, just over 30 miles away from where Dan Marburger had worked since 1995 and had been principal since 1997. He died on January 14th in the hospital, 10 days after the shooting. Marburger, age 56, was critically injured during the January 4th attack, which began in the joint middle and high school's cafeteria as students were gathering for breakfast before class. An 11-year-old sixth grader was killed in the shooting. Six other people were injured. The 17-year-old student who opened fire also died of a self-inflicted gunshot. Investigators said after the shooting that Margberger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. Perry Superintendent Clark Wicks said Marburger was a, quote, hero who intervened with the teenage gunman so that students could escape. But his family said at the funeral that they will remember the way Marburger loved them most of all. His daughter, Claire, said Dan's five kids, quote, never had to question if dad cares or was thinking of us, unquote. She said he, was al he would always show his love through his presence at every one of their events and his compassion. And even when he couldn't be there every day after his kids went to college, he would often Venmo them a few dollars so they could eat outside the cafeteria or top off their tank of gas. But he also tried to be there, regularly driving three and a half hours each way on a school night to watch Claire play basketball in college. If I had a genie with one wish, it wouldn't be a new car or a house or a dollar amount. It wouldn't have to be... It wouldn't even have to be to have Dad back, because I know that's a big wish, Claire said as she choked up at the funeral. My wish would be for one of Dad's hugs, just a couple of seconds to hold him, and he hold me, and to kiss the top of my head and tell me he was proud of me. Elizabeth Marburger said she got to experience Dan's unconditional love for 43 years since they first fell in love during the eighth grade, but it still wasn't enough. He modeled love and grace every day, my wish for all of you is to have someone, a parent, a partner, a friend, a sibling, who will love you unconditionally like Dan did for me, Elizabeth said. And she continued, and my other challenge to you 
is to see the good in the world. This that we've lived the last couple weeks has been the rotten, but the good is out there, and every day we have to look for the good. That has been evident in the way the Perry community came together after the shooting to support everyone who was hurting and raise money to help all the victims. Residents even arranged to make meals for the gunman's family as they mourn the loss of a son in a violent act that his parents said they never saw coming. Authorities have said the suspect, identified as Dylan Butler, had a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun with him when he came out of the bathroom where he posted an ominous picture to TikTok that morning and began shooting. He also had some kind of improvised explosive device with him that had to be disarmed. The town of about 8,000 people had to say goodbye to Amir Jollop several days before Marburger died in the hospital. But they've been able to celebrate the fact that everyone else who was wounded in the shooting is now recovering at home. Yet life is far from normal in Perry, with the kids still out of school. The district has announced plans to gradually bring students back, starting with the elementary school on Wednesday and middle school on Thursday. High school students won't return to class until the middle of the following week. The school district plans to restrict access to its buildings more and have uniformed police officers there when they reopen, but it won't take more significant measures that some have called for, like installing plastic or excuse me, installing metal detectors or requiring students to carry clear plastic bags. So many parents, particularly in the families of the students who were wounded, remain uneasy about sending their kids back. The investigation into what drove Butler to bring guns to his school and open fire remains ongoing, with investigators reviewing all his social media posts and reviewing evidence from the shooting and hours of witness testimony. The other story from the front page shows a photo of Governor Kim Reynolds appearing on uh, this week's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS. The headline there, Reynolds, gun laws wouldn't have stopped Perry shooting. This is by Aaron Murphy, Dateline Johnston. No new laws restricting gun access would have prevented a recent fatal shooting at Perry High School, said Governor Kim Reynolds on Friday. Reynolds was asked during the recording of this weekend's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS whether gun regulations should be a part of the discussion around how to prevent school shootings like the one on January 4th in Perry, in which a sixth grade student and the school's principal were killed. Quote, no additional gun laws would have prevented what happened, she said. There's just evil out there. Police said the 17-year-old shooter was armed with a shotgun and a small handgun and had placed an explosive device which did not detonate in the school. Authorities have not yet said how the shooter acquired the weapons. Reynolds said Iowa's thoughts and prayers continue go to go out to the Perry community. This is a horrible tragedy, she said. It's certainly nothing that any governor wants to wake up to in the morning and hear of what's happened. Like most Republicans, Reynolds said the focus should be on mental and behavioral health care. She spoke about the actions she's taken as governor, including the creation of a children's mental health care system, which advocates say is underfunded and funding for mental health care providers, and spoke about her proposal to redesign and streamline the state's regional delivery system for mental and behavioral health care. Reynolds also spoke about school safety measures undertaken by her administration, including the School Safety Bureau, which received $100 million in state-assigned federal funding 
and provide schools with an assessment of their safety needs. I'm proud of what we've done, Reynolds said. I've made behavioral health and mental health a key part of my priorities from the moment that I was sworn in as a governor of this state. Reynolds also praised the response from local law enforcement and emergency responders to the Perry School shooting, which she called incredible. And that's literally, those were literally the only two local stories in the Globe Gazette for today. So I'm going to go to the Sunday Gazette. Front page, picture of Kim Reynolds, same photo from before actually. Um, and it says, Iowa doesn't need nine AEAs. Administrators compensated an average of over $300,000, she said. This is also Dateline Johnston. Governor Kim Reynolds said Friday that she does not believe the state needs all of its nine area education agencies that provide support and expertise to schools, which she has proposed overhauling while insisting that she isn't calling for their closures. Reynolds' proposal would redesign AEA's funding structure, streamline the services they offer, and create new oversight in the Department of Education. She has said her proposal is needed to update a 50-year-old system and to improve special education services and outcomes for students with disabilities by narrowing the focus of AEA's work. The education agencies have strayed beyond their original charge of supporting special education services, she said, and have become too top-heavy. When asked Friday during recording uh, her appearance on this week's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS, whether Iowa needs nine AEAs, Reynolds said no. We're a small state, she said. That's why I did the realignment bill with state government. I need local governments to take a look at the level of bureaucracy that we have in place to serve the citizens of Iowa. It's too much. We need to drive consistency. We need to get that funding in the classroom and do everything we can to improve the outcomes for these children. Reynolds' office has insisted the governor is not calling for the closure of any AEAs and that her legislative proposal, likewise, does not require any to close. However, Reynolds has noted there have already been there already has been consolidation in the system. There used to be 15 AEAs in Iowa. Now there are nine. Her plan gives school districts the option to use funding for special education expertise other, elsewhere. We need to do something big, she said. We need to reform. I think by giving the districts the ability to hold the AEAs accountable to decide what program works best for the students they are serving, Reynolds said. Reynolds' proposal would restructure the way agencies are funded instead of state and federal funding going to the AEAs to fund the services they provide. Reynolds says, Iowa is the only state that operates that way, that money would instead go to K-12 public school districts, which would determine whether to use that funding for those AEA services or find similar services elsewhere, either at a different AEA or through a private company. Reynolds' proposal also would create an oversight apparatus in the state education department. The AEAs now are overseen by locally appointed boards. As justification for her proposal to overhaul and refocus Iowa's AEAs, Reynolds has cited statistics showing Iowa fourth grade students with disabilities perform below the national average and fourth and fifth, excuse me, fourth and eighth grade students with disabilities ranked 30th or lower on national reading and math assessments. That's unconscionable, Reynolds said. Reynolds last week announced changes to her initial proposal. 
which she unveiled January 10, the day after highlighting it during the annual Condition of the State Address. The amendment to make those changes, which would loosen the types of services AEAs could allow, could be allowed to offer beyond special education, has yet to be filed with the rest of the bill. Reynolds has taken the unusual step of issuing public statements on consecutive days this week to update Iowans about the legislative process of her proposal. In those public updates, Reynolds said she has received feedback about her proposal from parents, teachers, superintendents, and state lawmakers. Quote, really, what we're doing is kind of eliminating or reducing some of the overhead, Reynolds said on the Iowa PBS show. She continues, right now we have nine AEA districts, nine chiefs, and they were making, on average, when you look at their total compensation package, about $310,000 each. We don't need nine. We're a small state, she said. Her quote continues, The AEAs have varying degrees of what they were offering. We want to simplify it, but that money will go back into the system and into the classroom, unquote. Reynolds' proposed legislation was introduced in the Iowa House. The bill, called House Study Bill 542, as of Friday, had not yet been scheduled for a legislative hearing. That's the first step in the state lawmaking process. Iowa Prayer Press airs on Iowa PBS on noon on Sundays and can be viewed online at iowapbs.org. Here's a related story from the Saturday edition of the Globe Gazette. Uh, the headline is Cloud of Uncertainty, and it shows a photo of a young lady in a wheelchair. The caption is Mason City Roosevelt Elementary student Autumn Cooper. Um, with special education teacher Brooke Onder talking to substitute teacher Kathy McCurry. So this story is written by Alexander Schmidt. The subheading is Reynolds' plan for AEA overhaul has educators and lawmakers concerned. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal for overhauling the state area education agencies has been met with a wave of consternation from educators, parents, and legislators. The initial outcry was loud enough that on Thursday, Reynolds announced plans to loosen a key restriction in her bill. In her condition of the state address last week, Reynolds denounced legislation, House Study Bill 542, Senate Study Bill 3073, that includes transferring oversight of the nine area education agencies to the Iowa Department of Education, eliminating services, and changing the way that the organizations are funded. AEAs that provide expertise to educators and families would be prohibited from offering services beyond special education for students, and school districts could drop their current agency and look elsewhere for the services under the bill. Quote, Over the last year, in dozens of conversations with parents, teachers, school administrators, and AEA staff, it's become clear that while some of our AEAs are doing great work, Others are underperforming, Reynolds said last week. We have superintendents who won't use their services, but are still required to pay for them. And AEAs have grown well beyond their core mission of helping students with disabilities, creating top-heavy organizations with high administrative expenses, she said. The pushback was swift and strong. After meeting with parents, teachers, and lawmakers, Reynolds on Thursday proposed an amended version that would allow the AEAs to continue providing 
general education services, and media services. The agencies will continue to provide all special education services they do now, including child find and early access for children from birth to three years of age. The AEAs would continue providing special education and media services if requested by school districts and approved by the Iowa Department of Education under the proposed change. Quote, student success is my central focus, and the goal of my bill is to ensure Iowa students with disabilities receive the world-class education they deserve, Reynolds said in a statement. The statement continues, schools and parents know their students best, and this bill ensures that they are in the driver's seat in deciding how best to support their students. This model will give schools control over their money and create more transparency in the system, while also ensuring that AEAs can provide the education support some schools rely on. Reynolds' statement came after parents, teachers, and AEA staff warned that changing the structure of the agencies so quickly would upend services provided to districts and lead to disastrous outcomes. They note that under the governor's proposal as written, AEAs would no longer be able to provide experts to schools as they make curriculum decisions, support and implementing new curriculum, mental health support, services for students learning English as a second language, and technology and cybersecurity services, among other supports. Amy Nupp, that's K-N-U-P-P, is the Executive Director of Special Education for the Central Rivers AEA in Cedar Falls. It serves 63,500 students and 5,000 educators in 71 districts. Of those, 53 are public and 18 non-public, and that is in 18 counties, including Cerro Gordo. Just a fraction of the services provided by AEAs include hearing and vision services, juvenile detention center education, occupational and physical therapy, early access services for infants and toddlers, college and career readiness support, athletic, athletic coaching certification, computer science support, content-specific training like literacy, math, and science, gifted and talented program support and training, paraeducator certification and training, crisis emergency support, and library and digital resources. Quote, when we see a student struggling, not just special education students, we determine what interventions will be useful. Experts come in and help us fill the gaps and determine what strategies will work best for the child, Nup said. Quote, there's a lot of daily interaction all the time, whether it is special education or media resources. We ask what else do they need? Occupational therapy? Physical therapy? We have equipment on site. A student can try it out and see what works best for them before the school purchases it whether it's a wheelchair, a stander, or a communication device. The day of the Perry School student shooting, Heartland AEA had more than 50 people respond, including a unification response team and a crisis counseling team. All the AEAs have crisis teams that drop everything at a moment's notice. The governor says there is no oversight. We do have oversight. All AEAs go through compliance reviews through the Department of Education. We've received glowing reports. If there were concerns, why were they not communicated? Nobody has come and talked to us. I welcome any kind of feedback. Let's sit down and talk about what needs to improve, 
We were never given that opportunity, Nup said. Should the bill pass, nearly 100 jobs will be lost in the Central Rivers AEA region alone. Statewide among all AEAs, this number will climb to roughly 1,000. These jobs represent individuals serving in media, technology, and educational services. Those are professional learning roles. As all those services will go away, Nup said. She continues, additionally, remaining AEA staff will live under the cloud of uncertainty, not knowing from year to year if districts will contract their services, she said. This bill really turns it into a competitive bidding process, and students will not get near the services they get from us. This is not what our schools need. This is not what our students need. Currently, funding, called flow-through money, is set aside for special education services, general education services, and media services. That money goes to the schools and flows right into us. It is pooled, and we hire the sports staff to go out and help the districts with whatever they need. Under this bill, the federal and state money will go directly to the schools, who can contract through any AEA, hire their own staff, or go with an independent agency. We're talking about $70 million. The money for special ed will remain. Money for instructional and media services, the districts will not get that. All professional development for gen ed teachers will go away. All media, checking in and out books and equipment will go away. We have van drivers who deliver to the schools at least once a week, usually more than that. That will go away. I am most concerned about the smaller districts, the low incident schools who might get a student with autism or cognitive delays once every five to 10 years. How are they going to get assistance with that? These students need a lot of supervision and different types of instruction. Then they look to us for that. How are they going to contract out for that? They are the ones who are going to suffer the most. I think this bill could open discussions. It may be time to review the AEAs, but let's do it together. If they are concerned about the gap between gen ed and special ed performance, Let's identify the best practices to get into the districts, Nup said. Additionally, Nup said, under the bill, AEAs would not be able to own any property. River Hills will have to be turned over to the Department of Education, she said. Parents are very adamant about that program, very passionate. I would hate to see anything happen there. Jody Albertson, regional administrator with Central Rivers AEA, addressed a school board meeting in Osage on Wednesday with several colleagues who aired concerns with the bill and how it would affect rural schools like Osage. We are really, really concerned, Albertson said, showing a slide of nearly two dozen educators and professionals with the AEA who provide services in Osage, including consultants in literacy, computer science, early childhood, and math. All of the people on this slide stand to lose their jobs if this bill is passed, she said. Osage Superintendent Bob Barb Schwaman, that's S-C-H-W-A-M-M-A-N, also spoke into defense of the AEAs as currently constituted. Quote, last year our board took a stance against vouchers and what we and what we thought there. So I think this would be a very appropriate thing to work toward, where we can approve something to take a stance against it and state that the AEA programs are critical to our success and our future, Schwaman said. The AEA was founded on equity, Albertson said. 
she continues, making sure students can get what they need wherever they are in Iowa. I'm just not sure we will get that by replacing the current system with what's being proposed. We don't know how to plan ahead for this. The Students with Unique Needs program at Mason City High School partners with local businesses like Godfather's Pizza to help find a good fit for their students to gain work experience that will help guide them to their post-secondary education goals. The program's team is made up of paraeducators, teachers, administration, and Central Rivers Area Education Agency staff. I know that I'm a positive role model for students and I'm helping them accomplish life skills, said Ham Crawford, who is a paraeducator at Mason City High School. Working with these students has been a very rewarding experience for me. Speaker of the House Pat Grassley told reporters after Reynolds' speech last week there would be, quote, an expectation, unquote, that special education services would still be provided, but he wanted school districts to have freedom to allocate resources and money as they wished. Quote, I think there's going to be more of a want to give that flexibility to school districts, and I think you'll have the ability to be creative with some of the flexibilities that it sounds like will be in the governor's bill, Grassley said. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, a Republican of Grimes, echoed Grassley, You're looking at giving school districts the flexibility with that money to do what they want with it, he said. State Representative Jane Bloomingdale, Republican of Northwood, said, Under the governor's proposal, quote, The AEAs will focus solely on students with disabilities, and oversight will shift to the Department of Education, unquote. Bloomingdale said, she was looking into whether proposals would increase efficiency, cost savings, and better services for everyday Iowans. Democrats said they were skeptical and wanted to see details. Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat of Mason City, said she does not want to see this legislation rammed through the legislature. Quote, No one seems to know where the governor got her information from in this proposal. None of the AEAs were contacted. Teachers were not contacted. None of the people that really know what's going on were asked. It really is odd that no one heard about it. And then there it was. You do not write a 123-page bill in one day, unquote. Senator, Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, a Democrat of Dubuque, whose late daughter received special education services through the AEAs, said she was concerned the proposal could disproportionately affect rural areas. Quote, I know a lot of families with special needs children, and they're so dependent on these services, she told reporters after Reynolds' speech. It sounds like we're beginning to privatize even the area education agencies, she said. Now we'll turn to obituaries from the Globe Gazette. There were no obituaries in the Monday or Sunday editions. So from Saturday, here's what we've got. Alice Heitland, age 85, of Thornton, passed away January 13. Funeral services were held on Saturday. Mary F. Halstead, age 79, of Rudd, passed away Tuesday, January 16. A uh, massive Christian burial was be held, being held today, uh, 11.30 a.m., at the Holy Family Catholic Church uh, in Mason City. Um, Bonnie Lou Habercorn, age 88, of Mason City, passed away 
January 17th. Memorial services, Saturday, March 30th at the uh, 11.30 a.m. at the First Congregational United Church of Christ in Mason City. Visitation one hour prior to the service. Kelly Jo Swanson, age 61, died Wednesday, January 17. Celebration of Life will be Saturday, April 20, followed by a gathering at 2 p.m., um, both at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel in Mason City. Larry Maurice Muller of Osage, age 83, passed away Friday, January 12. Um, celebration of Life will be Saturday, April 27, 4 to 7 p.m. at the American Legion in Osage. Ken Ashland, um, age 92, of Spirit Lake. Uh, that will take place Friday, the, a memorial service, Friday, January 26th, 11 a.m., Grace Lutheran Church in Spirit Lake. Burial will follow at Lakeview Cemetery. Uh, visitation for Ken, Friday, 9 to 11, at Grace Lutheran Church. Scott Leslie McGowan, age 74, of Mason City, passed away uh, January 13th. A memorial service will be announced at a later date. And that's about the halfway point for the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Um, you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. You can catch uh, recordings of all of our local programs on our website iowaradioreading.org. And now we'll turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger for today. Um, looks like we've got some local news here on the front page. Um, there's a photo of Mid-American bills with um, a couple of dollar bills, and the headline is, Up for a Vote. FD Council to Vote on Franchise Fees Tonight. Revenue would pay for eight more police officers. And this is from Bill Shea of The Messenger, and he writes, Proposed utility franchise fees that would pay for hiring eight more police officers in Fort Dodge will come before the City Council tonight. Tonight's action will be the first in a series of votes that will determine if the fees will be enacted. The 5% fees would be added to the gas and electric bills of mid-American energy customers. They are projected to generate $2.4 million every year. That revenue would pay for adding eight members to the 40-officer police force. Revenue from the fees would also be used to offset that portion of the property tax levy that goes toward paying off general obligation bond debt. The property tax levy rate would thus be reduced by $1 per $1,000 of taxable value. Revenue from the fees would also provide funding for the Carl L. King Municipal Band Citizens Central, and other quality-of-life initiatives. If the franchise fees are enacted, the 1% local option sales tax now added to gas and electric bills would be dropped. There will be separate council votes on the gas and electric fran franchise fees. Each fee must be approved three times by the council in order to go into effect. The council will meet... Um, 
in the Municipal Building at 819 First Avenue South. At 5 p.m., there will be a workshop on the proposed 2024-25 budget. The proposed spending plan for the Carl King Band, Blandon Memorial Art Museum, Fort Dodge Public Library, Visit Fort Dodge, and Fort Dodge Regional Airport will be reviewed. The Council's regular business meeting will begin at 6. During that session, there will be a public hearing and vote on the first reading of the Natural Gas Utility Franchise Fee. There will also be a public hearing and vote on the first reading of the Electric Utility Franchise Fee. Also during the business meeting, the Council will consider awarding a contract for adding artificial turf to Yankee Stadium at Harlan and Hazel Rogers Sports Complex. Um, another story on the front page of the Messenger. Farmers can now enroll for the 2024 crop year. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has announced that agricultural producers can now enroll in the Farm Service Agency's Agriculture Risk Coverage and Price Loss Coverage programs for the 2024 crop year. Producers can enroll and make election changes for the 2024 crop year from now until the deadline of March 15, 2024. November 16, 2023, President Biden, Biden rather, signed into law H.R. 6363. That was the Further Continuing Appropriations and Other Extensions Act 2024. It extended the Agriculture Improvement Act of 2018 more commonly known as the 2018 Farm Bill, through September 30. This extension allows authorized programs, including ARC and PLC, to continue operating. Having the Farm Bill extension in place means business as usual for agriculture risk coverage and price loss coverage program implementation for the 2024 crop year. Nothing has changed from previous years, said FSA Administrator Zach Ducano. These programs provide critical financial protections against commodity market volatilities for many American farmers, so don't delay enrollment. Avoid the rush and contact your local FSA office for an appointment, because even if you are not changing your program election for 2024, you still need to sign a contract to enroll. Producers can elect coverage and enroll in ARC County or PLC which provide crop-by-crop crop protection, or ARC individual, which protects the entire farm. Although election changes for 2024 are optional, producers must enroll through a signed contract each year. Also, if a producer has a multi-year contract on the farm, it will continue for 2024 unless an election change is made. If no changes are made before the deadline, their election remains the same as their 2023 election for commodities on the farm. Farm owners cannot enroll in either program unless they have a share interest in the cropland. Covered commodities include barley, canola, large and small chickpeas, corn, flaxseed, cranberry, grain, sorghum, lentils, mustard seed, oats, peanuts, dry peas, rapeseed, Long grain rice, medium grain rice, safflower seed, seed cotton, sesame, soybeans, sunflower seed, and wheat. Last fall, 
the FSA issued payments totaling more than $260 million to agricultural producers who, who enrolled in the 2022 option and the ARC option for covered commodities that triggered a payment. Payments through the PLC option did not trigger for the 2022 crop year. ARC and PLC payments for a given crop year are paid out the following fall to allow actual county yields and the market year average prices to be finalized. These payments help mitigate fluctuations in either revenue or prices for certain crops. Payments for crops that may trigger for the 2023 crop year will be issued in the fall of 2024. ARC and PLC are part of a broader USDA safety net that also includes crop insurance and marketing assistance loans. Producers are reminded that ARC and PLC elections and enrollments can impact eligibility for some crop insurance products. Producers on farms with a PLC election can purchase supplemental coverage option through their approved insurance provider. However, producers on farms where ARC is the election are ineligible for SCO on their planted acres for that crop on the farm, uh, for that crop on that farm. The enhanced coverage option is unaffected by an ARC election. Producers may also may add EOC, ECO rather, regardless of the farm program election. Upland cotton farmers who choose to enroll seed cotton base acres in ARC or PLC are ineligible for the stacked income protection plan on their planted cotton acres for that farm. Next story from the front page, Honoring Dad's farm, Barn, rather. Wigdall Family Barn Fulfills One Man's Dream. Dateline Ruthven. It's rare when a family today knows plenty of details about the history of their barn, but when the Wigdall family, but the Wigdall family rather, is an exception. Dane Diane Stribe of Webster City carefully documented this Palo Alto County history for the Iowa Barn Foundation. The Wigdall family's barn embodies a dream that started when Stribe's grandfather, Leonard Wigdall, was a teenager. The second of ten children born to the Reverend L.O. Wigdall and his wife, Anna, Leonard quit school in the 10th grade so that he could farm. After homesteading in Montana for, for a few years, he married his wife, Nettie Knudsen, and settled on the Wigdall farm that Reverend Wigdall, who established Zion Lutheran Church in Ruthven, had purchased. The young couple took over the payments, but then came the Great Depression. About this time, my grandpa's brother-in-law, John Osterhus, heard about another 160-acre farm in Silver Lake Township coming up for sale. He offered to loan Leonard $2,000 as a down payment. Their bid of $6,000 was the highest bid, and with the help of a federal land bank loan of $4,000, they had a new start. While there was a barn on the farm, already it wasn't much. It was kind of a shell of a building, quickly and cheaply built, Stribe said. My grandparents moved that building about 200 feet and turned it into a cattle shed. Leonard Wigdahl began planning to build a sturdy new barn, measuring 34 feet wide by 64 feet long. The barn began to take shape 
July of 1936. They hand dug a trench all the way around for a footing, and all the sawing was done with hand tools. The main carpenter, Carl Berenson, received 50 cents an hour, while his four workers received 35 cents an hour. At the carpenter's suggestion, my family put red clay tile along the bottom to make the barn more durable, Stribe said. Stribe's father, Alden, was 15 years old at the time. He ran errands for the construction crew and was fascinated by the barn's progress. I'm sure he dreamed about the day when he would start farming full-time. The barn crew used gravel, sacks of cement, and a cement mixer with a gasoline-powered engine during construction. It took about 10 scoops of gravel and two scoops of cement and water to make the concrete, which was transported to the barn site in wheelbarrows. Alden estimated that the barn cost about $4,000 because lumber was much less expensive back then. The total cost of the barn in 1936 equates to more than 88500 in today's dollars. After the barn was complete, with room for horses on the north side and dairy cows on the south side, the Wigdahl family milked dairy cows there. Grandpa's brothers Sam and Carl owned the Wigdahl Brothers Hardware Stores in Ruthven and Emmitsburg, and they helped design a system for milking my grandpa's ten cows. They would send their customers out to watch the milking process in the evening, and often then they would sell one of their surge milking machines. When Alden was in charge of the farm, he raised hogs in the barn. I sometimes kept my dad company out on cold winter nights out in the barn as he farrowed pigs, he said. I remember the sound of sound rather of the contented cows with their pigs lined up at the milk bar. I remember the sound of the radio, which dad contended made for some made for more calm sows. The haymow was a magical place for the four Wigdahl kids, Diane, Barb, Susie, and Jeff. The west end held hay, and the east end held straw for bedding. My sister and I would play house up there in the summer. We would follow the mama cat up, and we would find her kittens, safely tucked back in a hole in the bales. I can still hear the pigeons cooing on the hay truck. In recent years, the Wigdahl family worked with the Iowa Barn Foundation and a Minnesota-based contractor known as the Barn Doctor to help restore the barn. My parents, Alden and Elsie, loved this farm so much, and they made it such a wonderful place for us to call home, Stribe said. The barn is the symbol of all they loved about this way of life that they chose. And then it shows um, a number of photos of, of the interior and exterior of the barn. It is white with a red foundation. And we have quite a few obituaries in the Fort Dodge Messenger today. We'll start with LaVon Rude, age 90, passed away Thursday, January 18th at the Marion Home in Fort Dodge. Funeral services Wednesday, January 24, uh, 11 a.m. at the Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Burial to follow at the Corpus Christi Cemetery. Visitation Wednesday, January 24, from 10 a.m. until the time of the service. Gregory Lutz, age 76, of Twin Lakes, passed away Sunday, January 21, at the Simpson Health Center at Friendship Haven. Arrangements are pending, so we don't have any dates on those there. Evan Kretlow, 
age 77, of Rockwell City, passed away uh, Saturday, June 20, at the Stewart Memorial Community Hospital in Lake City. No services are planned. Vernon E. Halder, age 85, of Fort Dodge, passed away Saturday, January 20th, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. Services are pending with the at, with the uh, Lofersweiler Funeral Home. Connie Johnson uh, visitation will be held from 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday at the Schmoker Center at Friendship Haven with a prayer service to follow. Jane Elizabeth Gross Pearson, age 97, of Fort Dodge, passed away January 13th at Bickford Assisted Living in Fort Dodge. Uh, funeral services, Saturday, January 27, 11 a.m. at the First Baptist Church of Fort Dodge. Visitation will be held from 10 to 11 prior to the service. Um, Angel M. Klein, age 53, of Fort Dodge, passed away Wednesday, January 17, at her home. Funeral services, 12 p.m. Saturday, January 27th, in the chapel at the Lofersweiler Funeral Home. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday at the funeral home. Gerald Jerry McCullum, McCullough rather, of Livermore. Celebration of Life, Saturday, June, January 27th, at the American Legion in Livermore, starting at 5 o'clock. PM. And now we'll turn to the opinion page. Got a few here. Uh, let's see, we have a political cartoon here. It has four panels. Um, it shows two people sitting on a couch. One is reading, a lady is reading a book. Um, man in a uh, sleeveless undershirt is reading a paper. On the front of the paper it says, Voters don't want Trump-Biden rematch. And a thought bubble coming from him says, she's. Next panel, the gentleman says, if the polls say nobody wants a Trump-Biden rematch, then he's dropped his paper. Now in the third panel, he's continuing to say, but that's what the voters gave us anyway. And then he looks at his wife in the fourth panel, or this woman, and she's looking back at him, and he says, why shouldn't democracy feel threatened? And then our first opinion, this is a messenger editorial, and it says, Celebrating Lutheran Schools Week, St. Paul Lutheran School has been in Fort Dodge since 1863. Students at St. Paul Lutheran School will have a bit more than the usual classwork this week. That's because the Fort Dodge School will observe Lutheran Schools Week. Among other things, there will be an awards chapel. Friday and Saturday, the St. Paul Saints will host an annual basketball tournament. The week provides the school's students with some fun breaks from their usual routine. But the greater purpose of the week is to highlight the strengths and characteristics of St. Paul Lutheran School and other Lutheran schools across the country. St. Paul Lutheran School has been a fixture in the community since 1863. To put that in perspective, Fort Dodge became a city in 1853 after the Army left its outpost here. The current school building is at 1217 4th Avenue South 
It was constructed in 1950, expanded in 1959, and remodeled in 1999. The school educates children in pre-K through 8th grade. It's an accredited it's accredited by rather the National Lutheran School Accreditation. School leaders tout the institution's Christ-centered environment, low student-teacher ratio, and classroom technology. They also point out there is financial assistance available for qualifying families. For generations, dedicated teachers, aided by capable support staff members, have educated hundreds of children at the school. We are grateful for that. We're also pleased to say that St. Paul Lutheran School is a respected institution in our community. And that was an editorial from The Messenger. Next, we have a piece from Mona Charin. Um, it, there's no bio information on Mona, but her piece is entitled Iowa's Silver Lining. No question that a 30-point victory for Trump was not the ideal outcome of the Iowa caucuses. Voters have only two opportunities to prevent the return to power of a Putin-besotted, anti-Semite-praising, constitution-terminating, multiple felony indictee, the primaries and the general. It would have been better if Trump had been rebuked early and hard by Republican voters, but that was not to be. Once the first indictment was handed down in New York, in the hush money for porn star case, the die was cast. The party faithful, partly because the Bragg indictment was legally shaky and pretty easily dismissed as politically motivated, rallied round their prosecuted, persecuted hero. I say partly because it wasn't just that the indictment was a stretch. It was also that MAGA Republicans so dearly want their ac the accusations to be false. To admit otherwise opens the door to considering that he may really have obstructed justice and blithely endangered national security in the classified documents case, lied about and attempted to steal an election, and looked on with depraved satisfaction as his minions searched for Mike Pence to commit murder. Even now, despite everything we've witnessed, I still cannot believe I must write those words. We'll never know if things would have been different, absent the Bragg indictment. Would the rally-round-the-mob-boss effect would have been as pronounced if the classified documents in the bathroom case had gone first? Or if Ron DeSantis hadn't proved to be such a doofus candidate? Or if all of the GOP candidates in the race had run as Chris Christie did? We cannot know. And while one can always hope for a miracle like Nikki Haley defeating Trump in New Hampshire, prompting South Carolina voters to rediscover their affection for their former governor, which would in turn upend the entire race, the chances of that are about as good as winning the lottery, which in South Carolina, those chances are about 1 in 293 million. So one cannot bank on most Republicans to save us from a second Trump term. Still, lurking in the pre-caucus polling is some reassuring news. We cannot count on most Republicans, but what about the skeptics? What about a few Republicans like Keenan Judge, a lifelong Republican who left the party over Trump? Or Loring Miller, who voted for Trump twice, but explained that, quote, January 6th did it for me. A true leader would have put an end to that, unquote. Though 48% of likely Republican caucus goers in the final Des Moines Register NBC poll 
listed Trump as their first choice, 11% said that if Trump were the nominee, they would vote for Biden. Among the 20% who said Haley was their first choice, fully 43% said they would vote for Biden in the general if Trump is nominated. According to the Washington Post, 94 of Iowa's 99 counties moved toward Republicans between 2012 and 2020. Most voters don't show up for primaries, even fewer for caucuses. In 2016, 187,000 turned out. That's just 15.7% of voters. Last night, so this must have been written last week, only about 110,000 made it. We are evaluating results from one of the whitest, most evangelical, most rural states in the nation. The Des Moines Register pre-caucus poll also found that many of these, among these gung-ho Republicans, 6% would support Robert F. Kennedy Jr. rather than Trump, and 8% would seek another third-party choice. The bottom line, at least 25% of Iowa Republican caucus goers say they will not vote for Trump in the general. That's significant. Our elections are decided by a few thousand votes in five swing states. Admittedly, Iowa is not one of those swing states. But if large numbers of Republicans in ruby-red Iowa are saying that they will not vote for Trump in the general, what does that suggest about Republicans in places like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia? 11% of Republicans in Iowa tell a pollster that they will vote for Biden. Biden, the guy everyone says even Democrats are having trouble working up enthusiasm for. Whatever those misgivings may be, I very much doubt that 25% of Democratic primary voters would say they're thinking of voting for Trump or a third party. The interest in third party, third parties rather, remains a serious challenge, but if we're indulging in hope, we can see the work ahead. Independents are even more determined to prevent Trump from gaining another term than the minority of Republicans who have drawn a line against him. Some, perhaps many, independents have not yet fully processed that we will be facing another Trump-Biden choice in November. Once Trump is in front of their faces again, they will remember why he's unacceptable, just as the January 6th hearings in the summer of 2022 drove down Trump's approval. The undimmed Trump support among the most encircled block of Republicans shouldn't blind us to the other news from Iowa. There's a saving remnant out there, and we need to buttress them before November. And that was written by Mana Charon, C-H-A-R-E-N. And that's about all the time we have for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Um, you have been listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. You can learn more about Iris on our website, iowaradioreading.org. It's been my pleasure to read for you today. My name has been, or it still is, Mary Francis. Have a great day. Thank you.